Stop. Brilliant. Come on, you lot, stop talking. All right. So here we are. <clears throat> Today is the second and the final message on the subject of homosexuality. Um, if you weren't ready for that, you're thinking, what the heck? Um, we're doing a mini-series on the subject. I'll explain why as we go on. There will be time for questions and answers this week. Um, last week, I just forgot. And the funny thing is, I think sometimes people assume if, if a pastor doesn't do something he said he was going to do, it's for some spiritual reason. And I'm sure sometimes it is, but very often it's because you just forget. And so Davinus, over lunch, she said, so, you know, what were you thinking regarding the questions and answers? And I said, oh, I just forgot. Um, so if I forget again, say, oh, it, it, there's no reason for that other, other than I've just forgotten. So let's just, um, we're going to go deep again this week. Are you up for that? Yeah. It was deep. It was meaty last week. It's going to be deep and meaty this week. Um, I think to treat the subject in any other way would be a little bit of an insult, really, considering how topical it is for the day and age that we live in and the part of the world that we live in. Let me just recap on where we got to last week. I started by introducing the topic, um, which I felt was very uh, important to do. Spent about 15 minutes doing that because it's so relevant and then there's so many questions surrounding it and there's so much controversy surrounding it. Some Christians say things like, look, it's not even a big deal. You should be focusing on sermons about third world debt and um, wars. I mean, this stuff is no big deal anymore. Even someone like Desmond Tutu, uh, you know, huge figure in the Anglican church, highly respected has now just said, this is not, it's not a big deal. The whole sexuality thing is just not a big deal either way. It's, it's, the big deal are, are these other things. Now, of course, those other things are big deals, but I think to say that this isn't a big deal is incredibly naive. Jesus' teaching, in the main, focused on heart issues. Why? Because the heart creates the person. The person and the, or, and the people create the family. The family creates the community. The community creates the nation, and the nation creates the nations, and the nations create the world. So if you want to be a world changer, you have to change hearts. There's no point, it's not good enough to just work on external things. You have to get right to the heart, and the heart issues are what we're going to look at. In fact, the whole issue of heart change is where we differ. Come and sit down, Pete, it's fine. Yeah, come and sit down. Don't stand up there, you'll be up there, your legs will be... I'm going to go for hours today, man. You're going to be... I'm going to stand up today, man. These preachers are just getting longer and longer. Okay. It's where we differ that the message that we have has the power to transform people from the inside out. Whereas other attempts, not that they're wrong at all in any way, but it's gen genuinely they try to look at behaviour or change environment, change situation. People will say, well, because things are, you know, for example, the youth are going wild because they're bored. So let's create a new youth club and it's nothing wrong with that, but it's external. The church has been entrusted with the message that transforms from the inside out. And so we've got to keep going to the heart and believe in God that as transformation comes in the deepest part of our being, it will then outflow into every part of life, every part of education, legislation, as those transformed believers get into every part of the world and be the light of the world. And so it's a huge thing that we look at these heart issues and that we are faithful with what we've been entrusted with, which is the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. Hallelujah. Now we must hit the other things. 
And we will hit the other things, third world debt wars, we will definitely talk about those kinds of stuff. But we must also hit those issues which are personal, and which some people say are private, and are best left alone. But we can't do that. Because sexuality is intimately tied in with identity. All of our consciousness is not just as a human, but it's as a he, as a her, as a him. That's all part of it and what that means. So you can't separate that from identity. So it's core. We must get come to grips with it. Not only this, but an understanding on sexuality, homosexuality, and the consensus on that in a nation will shape the whole nation. It will shape the education system. It will shape the schools where your children go. And if you haven't got children yet, where your children in the future go, if you have children, and where they will spend most of their waking hours will be shaped by the whole um, consensus of a nation. Media will be shaped by it. And so in that sense, it's vital that we are clued in and that we know what's going on and that for the sake of the next generation as well as ours, that we raise a standard and say, here's what the Bible teaches. We're not going to sidestep it or just go quiet. mustn't do that. It's cowardly. must be bold and gracious and loving, but robust in these things. So we introduced the subject, then we looked at the Bible. I hope you found that clear and helpful. We went from Genesis, creation, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Levitical law, Jesus' teaching on homosexuality or lack of it, and the epistles. We worked all the way through that, didn't we? I hope you found that clear and helpful. The conclusion was that the Bible unequivocally um, condemns homosexual practice as immoral. We looked at some of the arguments of the GLBT gang. Now, who are these? It stands for Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual and Transgender. They, uh, they, it's a title they often go by. I'll refer to them in that way for the rest of the message. Otherwise, I'll spend an extra 20 minutes just saying <laughs> what they are. So it's GLBT from now on. We looked at some of their arguments. And um, uh, it seems that their arguments which appeared the strongest were arguments from silence. But as we looked at those, they, they were weak. And the other arguments which weren't from silence were ridiculous. Now, my whole aim here is not to come in a superior or in a vindictive way, but I think very often we tend to give way to those who shout the loudest. Yeah? We feel intimidated by those who make the most noise, and so because of that, we never take the content of what they're saying and put it under the searchlight, put it under the spotlight. Well, we did that last week, and their arguments were found wanting. Their arguments seemed much more like a contrived construction, erected with the aim to justify a particular lifestyle, rather than anything that comes actually out of God's word. We looked at, finally last week, we looked at the agony of someone who's same-sex attracted and yet loves the Lord, wants to follow the Lord, believes the Bible, what to do in a situation. What, what, what is our response as a church? Our response is that you are completely welcomed, if that is you. Completely welcomed, completely accepted here. And that we would view as no different from anyone else in the sense that every one of us has got issues in our lives where we're aware we are not Christ-like. Sometimes deep things that we've lived with for a long time and we're looking to work through and we're looking to walk free from. And we just say, come and join us on the journey. That's fine. We'll be committed to helping you find healing from that condition. And in the meanwhile, until that happens, committed to supporting you to live a joyful and triumphant celibate life. Now, before we get into the meat of today's message, we need to look at a couple of important matters. Number one, are you preaching on this, Steph, because it's the worst sin? No. The Bible is clear that things like disobedience to parents, greed, outbursts of anger, witchcraft, envy, gossip, murder, sexual immorality, homosexuality, are all sins, and the Bible tends to treat them, tends to in the main, in a general way. 
It doesn't, as a rule, make a list of this one's worst or this one in the pecking order, although it does hint at the fact that there are some sins more serious than others. I won't go into that now, but I'll talk to you about it afterwards if you want to do that. But the Bible says really that all, all sins that we work so hard at as sinners uh, get paid faithfully with a wage which is called death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And it doesn't differentiate between what particular kind of sin, the wages of sin, full stop, is death. However, I want to m- mention that sexual sin does get um, a special mention, if you like, in the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6.18, the Apostle Paul says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What we see there, I think that's hinting at the power of sex and the very intimacy of sex as God has created it means that sexual sin is in a class of its own when it comes to the damage we bring on ourselves as we fool around with it. It's no small thing. And so is homosexuality the worst of the sexual sins? The Bible never suggests that. The Bible does describe it as unnatural and presents it as a very vivid picture of what it is when we fall away from God and turn to images of ourselves, but it never suggests that it's the worst one. So why am I preaching on it? I'll tell you why, because there's so much confusion in the church on the matter, and not just the Anglican church. There are some significant rumblings going on in churches that describe themselves as evangelical and sometimes charismatic, who are beginning to argue it's okay. So I want to just bring some two messages that hopefully are very clear on what the Bible teaches and doesn't teach and various other relevant issues. <coughs> Second thing before we get into the bulk of today, why do I tend to focus on male homosexuality and less on lesbianism? Well, the answer is, is that although in a spiritual sense they're both the same and lumped together, they seem to work very differently. Compl- there's a complexity about them that seem to work uh, very differently. So a survey by Catherine Feathers and Karen Marks in Australia in the year 2000 found that um, women who described themselves as lesbians were 4.5 times as likely to sleep over their lifetime with 50 plus men than women who describe themselves as heterosexual. So women who describe themselves as lesbians were 4.5 times more likely to sleep with 50 plus men during their lifestyle than women who describe themselves as heterosexual. It's a very different kind of approach. 93% of those who said they were lesbians had a sexual history with men also. And so it seems that the whole male homosexual community thing tends to be in many ways more um, established as a, uh, in, 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 and the driving force behind this whole idea of a, a gay identity or a, a, a kind of, in quotes, you know, or gay culture, in quotes, this whole construct which is developing over the last few decades seems to be... Um, more built around that, and so um, that's why I'm tending to focus on that slightly more. Although all the biblical stuff refers to homosexuality, well, it refers to sexual immorality per se. So anything that is outside of heterosexual marriage is sexual immorality, and the Bible refers to everything outside of that when it's talking about these things. So where are we going this week? Number one, is there a homosexual, have they discovered a homosexual gene? Number two, is it a healthy lifestyle? Is it physically healthy, mentally healthy, and socially healthy? And number three, what do the GLBT churches, in quotes, say, and how do we respond to what they say? Are you ready for it? Are you still awake? Okay. Before we answer the question, have they discovered a homosexual gene, we first need to wipe the mist 
off of our own biblical spectacles so that we can be ultra clear on this. Let me read to you from Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole of creation groaning together, subjected to futility. The Bible teaches that the whole of creation is out of kilter. The whole of creation is under the curse of sin as a result of mankind's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. Now taking today's specific topic aside, I think we would all agree that there are many genetic defects that people are born with. What is the reason for that? It's symptomatic of the fact that creation has fallen. It's a symptom. Now, we're not suggesting for a minute that those with more obvious genetic defects are more sinful than others. No, 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 no. What we're saying is there appears to be kind of a, almost, it appears a random deal where you're living in a fallen creation. We are subject to these things, to genetic defects. And so what's being suggested here by me, and I think from the Bible, is that all inherited imperfections are the result of our fall from perfection and into sinfulness. Now this has huge implications on genetically affected sexuality, if it were ever to be discovered, which we'll look at in a minute. Listen to what John Piper says. John Piper's a pastor from America, and um, you can find um, he he did two very helpful um, sermons on homosexuality called The Dark Exchange, and you can find it on desiringgod.com. He says this, But what if genetic origins were found? What would this imply about the morality and the fitness of the behaviour? Very little if nature itself is disordered and in need of redemption. Having a physical root makes nothing right. Physically-based aggressive tendencies may lead to violent behaviour, but we don't condone it. Physically-based lethargic tendencies may lead to laziness and neglect, but we don't condone it. An anxious bent may lead to paranoia. Addictive tendencies may lead to alcoholism. Strong sexual desires may lead to lust or pornography or fornication or adultery or polygamy. There are many physically-based abnormalities in the world. Therefore, having a physical base or root is not sufficient reason for condoning anything as natural or good. You understand that? We must come to terms with the fact that, guess what? We are rotten sinners. <laughs> oh, only one person like that. Listen, we are. It's one thing to tick the, do- to tick the box doctrinally, isn't it? It's another thing to actually say, no, listen, we are. We're rotten to the core. That's why we need saving. And we have a responsibility, those of us that have been born again, our heart of stone has been taken out, our heart of flesh has been put in, we've been given the Holy Spirit, we've got a brand new moral centre, if you like. Our responsibility now is to learn through the Holy Spirit to resist all temptation to sin. In fact, the the Bible says in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Strong language, violent language. Jesus said this, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. It's interesting, isn't it? Let him deny himself. Some say, Christians need to accept this homosexuality thing. It's me. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. And you can apply that not to just homosexuality, any number of things. 
greed, anger. I've always been like that. My family's always been like that. No, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily. It's not a once-for-all battle. Daily. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Having said all that, have they discovered a homosexual gene? No, they haven't. There have been a number of articles that have been published in the media over the last few years that have been premature in their conclusions, have been reflective more of a political agenda than of science. And that is acknowledged now. So you might have seen certain billboards or things in big magazines and it's like, they've discovered it. No, they haven't. All surveys are inconclusive, but seem to be erring the other way. Let me give you one reason why they seem to be erring the other way. I don't know if you know this, but identical twins have identical DNA. Therefore, if homosexuality is genetically predetermined, then if one, if one tw identical twin is, in quotes, homosexual, or has got involved in that, or described themselves as gay, then when you surveyed their identical twin, they must either also be like that or else pretending not to be, if you like. Otherwise, it's not genetic. Well, the studies shown seems to reveal that the majority of identical twins, where one describes himself as gay, the other one doesn't. Now, that in and of itself is a pretty big hurdle for the people to clear that want to suggest that it is genetic. Dr. John Diggs, who is a board-certified internal medicine specialist, he says this, and I'll be quoting from him a lot. If you want to read his paper, you can find it on catholiceducation.org stroke articles stroke homosexuality. He says, research designed to prove that gays and lesbians are born that way has come up empty. There is no scientific evidence that being gay or lesbian is genetically determined. Even researcher Dean Hamer, who is a top geneticist, who once hoped he had identified a gay gene, admits there is a lot more than just genes going on. Now, if neurological tests found a link between homosexual lifestyle, homosexual orientation, and brain functions, here's how it would most likely work. Let me read to you from... Um, Dr. Jeffrey Satanova. Now, he is a former fellow in psychiatry at Yale University and past William James lecturer in psychology and religion at Harvard. His book, Homosexuality and the Politics of Truth, is probably the best book I've read. I haven't read loads, but it's very accessible, but at the same time, very, very thorough. I urge you to get it if it hasn't been banned. He says this. Even if such brain differences were convincingly demonstrated to be present, their significance would be on a par with the discovery that athletes have bigger muscles than non-athletes. For though a genetic tendency towards larger muscles may make it easier to become an athlete, becoming an athlete will certainly give one bigger muscles. One researcher comments, the brain's neural networks reconfigure themselves in response to certain experiences. One fascinating NIH study found that in people reading Braille after becoming blind, the area of the brain controlling the reading finger grew larger. You find the same with the taxi drivers. The, the memory area of the brain physically, uh, they've found it, that, that actually it's become larger through the exercise of learning the knowledge. What, what, what's being said here, what's being said this, is this. What I do determines what I am as much as what I am determines what I do. 
Both are true. So you might say, I don't smile much, I'm not a happy person. If I was happy inside, I would smile more. Let me do a test for just a second. That's true, but let me do a test for a second. I'm gonna, in a second, I'm going to ask you to smile. If in, the, if in the doing of the action of smiling, you don't find yourself feeling happier, I'll be surprised. Okay, ready? Smile. Did it affect you in any way? Did, did it? You're not going to say no, are you? Because you feel sorry for me if you didn't. But I did it, I did it, I did it to myself at some point in the week, in the library. It's a great thing, it works really well. But what's being saying here? What's being saying is this, that our behaviour shapes our physical characteristics and our makeup, as well as our physical characteristics and our makeup shaping our behaviour. Here's a silly example. Imagine for the next six months that I'm going to eat chocolate every morning for breakfast. And at the end of that six months, I'm going to stop. What would happen on the morning that I stopped? I would be a mess. On a num- for a number of reasons. I'd be a mess because my body would have become in some way addicted to the sugar. And so I'd have a debilitating headache. But perhaps more fundamentally um, insightful is this. Is that I would also be in a mess. Because my brain had become addicted to the pleasure of that chocolate first thing in the morning. More than just the sugar, the brain itself. Now this is very, very interesting. Some neurological stuff for you. I'll t- I'm, if you're not impressed after this, I'll tell you. I don't know, don't know what will impress you. <laughs> The whole chocolate thing, after six months, what would have happened? I would have, I would have formed a habit. But what is a habit? Is there anything about the actual brain physically which shows us, gives any light on what habits are? Yes, there are. There are parts of the brain which are not set. They're plastic. That means they are movable. And they respond and reconfigure in the light of the choices that we make. That's how habits are formed. Now, the areas of the brain that are particularly um, linked in with pleasure are in the most developed part of the brain and, um, and, and, those, parts, and those parts of the brain um, where, where, when you experience a particular strong sense of pleasure obviously certain chemicals and hormones are released and those parts of the brain, those connectors there, they're loving that okay, and they start thinking, hey we need to do this again and quick okay, that's what happens neurologically this is why you often find, particularly, people get trapped in sexual sin. Because the ecstasy of orgasmic pleasure um, that involved with whatever kind of uh, sexual act, it releases such um, strong chemicals into such a sensitive part of the brain. And as you go on doing that, what you, what you find is, is, is that the brain reconfigures and increasingly needs to do that. This is how many people find themselves in a situation where they are addicted sexually. You find it, you find a huge thing, you find it's, you say, why is it so powerful? There's, there's answers why. It's not that it can't be broken, but it becomes increasingly set the more you do it. So what began as a choice, suddenly that choice element comes out and you just find yourself drawn and compelled. You find it particularly with things like uh, pornography, such a huge grip on so many in the church who want to love the Lord and, and live for him. And you, you, you chat a bit, you get under the surface and they say, look, I've been looking at... And it's like, well, how did you get into this? And it's just like, oh, everything in them doesn't want to. But something's happened and it's become more like a compulsion. Now, this does not explain why those who are self, same-sex attracted are like that in the first place. But it helps to explain why those who experiment in that lifestyle very often find themselves trapped. Because of the buzz, the high, the moment of excitement, encounter, becomes increasingly addictive. They did a test on mice and cocaine. They, 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 they gave mice cocaine. And what they found in the end was that the mice just, in the end, they had no concern for 
It's funny, isn't it? They had no, going, they had no concern for food or drink at the end of it. They just wanted the white lines. <laughs> yeah? Something had happened neurologically. They just were like, give me that buzz again. And so these experiments have been done. Now, the thing is, is that ultimately, although, although there are these moments of pleasure which become addictive and compulsive, ultimately it's shame-creating because you in yourself think, oh, I don't want to do this. It's also dehumanising because one of the faculties God has given us is our free will that we're supposed to rule in a godly sense over ourselves and over our situation. It's also unsatisfying in a long-term way. So what we're being taught here is that there's nothing to suggest that same-sex attraction is genetic or predetermined. However, in the light of that, I think it's also worth saying that some men are obviously born less macho than others regarding temperament and physique. Some guys, you know, some guys are born with a beard, aren't they? You know, you know the types. <laughs> Remember school, in year seven. You think, what the heck? You thought they were a teacher, and they tell you they're in your class. You think, there's no way I'm going to get in the shower. You know, no way. They're just like that. You know, they had a beard since they were in, like, reception. You think, what? They're just, you know, their physical prowess, you know, they've got muscles coming out their ears. You think, what's going on? And some guys are just like that physically. They're, that's, they're just much more the archetypal alpha male, if you like. Others, you know, less and less, less so. <laughs> you have to work hard for the muscles. <laughs> also, in terms of temperament, some guys are more naturally just perhaps more sensitive, um, less typical, you know, kind of, I'm fine, you know. Other guys are just more thick-skinned. That's just reality. These facts, however, are not necessarily reflective in proportion to same-sex attraction. So you can find a guy who's got no muscles and you know, can barely grow a moustache and you know, is very sensitive, but he's not attracted to those of the same sex at all. And vice versa, you can find those who look like, you know, look like Rocky or someone like this, but they're, they're living a homosexual lifestyle. So we've got to be able to separate homosexuality from different... Um, physiques, personalities, temperaments, etc. However, we still need to accept that certain physical or genetic traits can lead to certain experiences in life that can lead perhaps to living a homosexual lifestyle. Let me give an example. Imagine someone who's born, they're introverted, sensitive and non-sporty. Okay? Non-sporty in their physique, they're either, I don't know, very naturally just very big boned, you know, or kind of, you know, just non-muscular or whatever. Um, don't like getting hurt, you know, don't want to play, play rugby, blah, blah, blah. So introverted, sensitive, and non-sporty. Let's imagine this person. So because they're introverted, they're kind of awkward, you know, and so don't quite know, maybe they've got no sisters either. Don't know how to, don't know how to relate to girls too well, don't know how to relate to the opposite sex. A bit awkward there. And people notice that. And so other guys begin to be a bit rude and make comments, so you don't really like the girls, blah, blah, blah. That's when the si si sensitivity kicks in. <gasps> they said, I don't like the girls, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm the other way. You know, that can begin to happen and come to the conclusion, well, maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm not straight. This can then become confirmed by the unsportiness. All the guys that are sporty seem to get the girls. And a lack of physical prowess, you could, this guy can start thinking to himself, I'm not a worthy male specimen. Looking in the mirror and thinking, what the heck? What's happened here? Yeah? Guys are quite wired that way, visually, even around themselves. And so they're introverted, they're not, they don't know how to relate to girls. Guys have been saying things like, well, he doesn't know how to talk to you. And he starts thinking, maybe I'm, you know, the other way. And then suddenly, you know, and then, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I can't, you know, score goals for the football team, the girls aren't interested. I mean, look at me, anyway, would a girl even find me attractive? And a journey can begin 
whereby a guy just out of fear of rejection, out of just doesn't get him, just thinks I'm not going to go there. I'm, I'm not, I'm not in my, you know, I haven't got what it takes. And then I guess you just throw in a few more complicated factors and you, before you know it, the guy can be just turning to guys, what is known, what is safer, and even finding some kind of affirmation in terms of just being around guys in that way and some kind of intimacy and quotes there. Now, I'm, it's a very brief thing, but I'm just trying to show you how predetermined traits can make some perhaps more prone to that kind of thing, going down that way, because I want to appreciate that, but there's no way that a homosexual gene has been discovered. It also seems that environmental factors and choice are the huge issues when it comes to homosexuality. So, what about those who argue that, well, okay, but anyway, homosexuality is a valid and a healthy lifestyle, worthy of mainstream recognition. Well, other than the Bible, is there anything to suggest this is not the case? Yes, there is. I'm going to read you some quotes now, some stats. Physical health, number one. There have been many studies, and so the results differ in degrees, but they're of the same vein. I'll let the stats speak, and I won't even comment much. Jeffrey Sanatova, the guy who wrote this book I spoke about earlier, he's just been, um, he, he, he just gives a list um, uh, of some of the um, typical, more typical symptoms of the homosexual lifestyle. A significantly decreased likelihood of establishing or preserving a successful marriage. A 25 to 30 year decrease in life expectancy. Chronic, potentially fatal liver disease, infectious hepatitis, which increases the risk of liver cancer, inevitably fatal immune disease, including associated cancers, frequently fatal rectal cancer, multiple bowel and other infectious diseases, a much higher than usual incidence of suicide, a very low likelihood that its adverse effects can be eliminated unless the condition itself is. He goes on to say, epidemiologists estimate that 30% of all 20-year-old homosexual males will be HIV positive or dead of AIDS by the time they are 30. 3 in 10. John Diggs says this, 20-year-old gay men are 50% likely to be HIV by the time they're 55 years old. The probability of a 20-year-old gay to live to 65 is 32% compared to 78% for a heterosexual. The average homosexual's life expectancy is down 20 years on the average heterosexuals. Compare that to 13.5 years for the average smoker. And look at all the money and effort that's been placed into people, helping people to stop that habit because it's unhealthy. Listen to this. In April 1993, three researchers presented a paper to the Eastern Psychological Association in which they analysed the age of death for nearly 7,000 homosexuals and heterosexuals by obituary notices in a large number of gay and a smaller number of large non-gay newspapers. They found that the gay male lifespan, even apart from AIDS and with a long-term partner, is significantly shorter than that of married men in general by more than three decades. AIDS further shortens the lifespan of homosexual men by more than 7%. Syphilis is three to four times as likely in the homosexual community than in the heterosexual community. Evidence suggests this, that it's a uniformly unhealthy lifestyle, physically fraught with risk and danger. I've spared you some of the most graphic and horrific details um, because I felt that that would be unfair for those of you who have come here not prepared. But if you want to read them, I can send you to an article. It's, it's pretty disturbing, the realities of some of the things associated with homosexual practice. How about mental health? Listen to this. In 1978, a US study discovered that this, discovered this. 75% of those who call themselves same-sex attracted had over 100 partners. 
15% had between 100 and 249 partners. 17% had between 250 and 499 partners. 15% had between 500 and 999 partners. 28% confessed to having over 1,000 different partners during their lifestyle. 28%. In a survey of those in the gay community who had a fixed partner who described himself in, a, in an exclusive relationship, it was discovered that 66% had intercourse outside of that relationship in the first year and 90% in the first five years. Camille Paglia, who's a lesbian, but very critical of the gay lifestyle, wrote in an article called I'll Take Religion Over Gay Culture, she said this, after a period of optimism about the long-range potential of gay men's one-on-one -on -one relationships, gay magazines are starting to acknowledge the more relaxed standards operating here, with recent articles celebrating the bigger bang of sex with strangers or proposing monogamy without fidelity. The latest Orwellian formulation to, ex to excuse having your cake and eating it too. The figures and the comments here suggest that homosexual men are not finding what they are looking for in one-to-one -one relationships. And it also suggest, suggests that the sexual lifestyle is one of a compulsive nature. And whenever something's compulsive, it's indicative that something is wrong, that someone is trapped. They're no longer operating out of their free will, but are being compelled, it seems. To, to join with those people and celebrate that is not compassionate. The homosexual community has very high rates of psychological illness, depression, drug abuse and suicide attempts. Often in the past this has been blamed on homophobia. They say it's because we're a persecuted minority until a survey was taken in the Netherlands, which there is basically outside of the extreme Muslim community there, there's no persecution, there's no homophobia, and the stats were found to be exactly the same. Why is this? Maybe something inside them is saying, this, I know this isn't as it should be, but I can't find any way out. There is no way out. That would explain the mental and the emotional trauma that many experience. I wonder if many of them deep down would like to come out all over again and say, this isn't working, I need help. But maybe even they are intimidated by the juggernaut that is the gay rights movement. How about social health? This is the most disturbing, I think. Listen to this, Jeffrey Satanova. The dramatic shift of values that normalises homosexuality must inevitably come to normalise all forms of sexuality. This is not a merely hypothetical argument. Both here and abroad, the normalisation of homosexuality has been followed by a move to normalise all forms of sexuality, paedophilia explicitly included, and to lower the age of consent laws so as to make it legal as well. An, advoca an advocacy group exists, the North American Man-Boy Love Association which actively promotes homosexual paedophilia as an acceptable alternative form of sex. Their contentions as to the naturalness, normalcy, unchangeability and ubiquity of paedophilia mirror precisely the arguments used to support the naturalness, normalcy and so on of homosexuality, as does their claim that the social condemnation of paedophilia is arbitrary and prejudicial. Dr John Diggs, after referring to promiscuity and health issues involved in the homosexual community says this, the societal implications of the unrestrained sexual activity described above are devastating. The idea of sexual activity being limited to marriage, always defined as male-female, has been a fence erected in all civilizations around the globe throughout history. Many people have climbed over the fence, engaging in premarital, extramarital and homosexual sex. Still the fence stands, the limits are visible to all. Climbing over the fence, metaphorically, has always been recognised as a breach of those limits, even by the breaches themselves. No civilization 
foundation can retain its vitality for multiple generations after removing the fence. But now social activists are saying there should be no fence and that to destroy the fence is an act of liberation. If the fence is torn down, there is no visible boundary to sexual expression. If gay sex is socially acceptable, what logical reason can there be to deny social acceptance of adultery, polygamy or paedophilia? The polygamist movement already has some support from some of the advocates of the GLB rights and some in the psychological profession are floating the idea that maybe paedophilia is not so damaging to children after all. A sober conclusion. The lifestyle is unnatural and unhealthy. It is not truly loving to just say different strokes for different folks. It's an abdication of our responsibility. However, you can almost perhaps understand that those with no knowledge of God those with no fear of God, no, those with no understanding of the gospel, the healing that can be found in Christ, may fall into such error. But for those who name Jesus as Lord and the Bible as their scripture, to do so, beggars believe. For whole congregations to arise and begin affirming what God condemns, condoning what God condemns is beyond comprehension. To have churches that are more shaped by the gay rights movement than scripture is a disgrace. There must be some involved in those churches who deep down realise all is not well. You can't get the spirit of the age and try and marry up with a God who transcends time and a God who is holy and will not compromise his holiness for any passing fancy of you or me. You can't just bring the two together and expect it's all going to be okay. It will end in disaster. And one of the most alarming elements of the GLBT congregations is that they say we're the compassionate ones. We, you, churches like us are seen as unenlightened, bigoted. We're seen as narrow. Enter by the narrow gates. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Should we look at some of the main arguments they bring up and shoot them down? Yeah. Number one. Christianity is all about tolerance, is it? If it is, why does Jesus say this in Revelation 2? I have this against you, speaking to a particular congregation. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. He's not very tolerant, Jesus, sometimes, is he? What Jesus are you following? That's Revelation 2, 20 to 23. It sounds to me they're like Jesus is rebuking the church for tolerating someone who calls himself a leader who is leading the people into immorality. Oops. Double oops, because we discovered last week that when the Bible talks about sexual immorality, it most definitely includes homosexuality. My question is, what do they do when they come across such passages during their preaching? Maybe they just skip it for the week. I don't know. I can't understand it for a minute. What is Christian tolerance? 
Because we are to, we are to be tolerant in one, in one aspect. But what is Christian tolerance? Here it is. Christian tolerance is this. It's an acknowledgement that God honours the free will and the conscience of people. And so therefore we do the same. We would never try to coerce, pressurise or force anyone into Christianity. We are very uh, tolerant of those who have different beliefs, different viewpoints. We happily live with such people. We believe in religious freedom. We believe that it's impossible for someone to be converted by the edge of the sword. They're not truly converted. They're just saying it because they don't want to be killed. The only true conversion is a work of God in the heart of someone. It's supernatural, yeah? That's what we believe, utterly. So we're totally, no, we will love those who believe differently from us. We won't agree. We'll want to introduce them to Jesus, but it's their decision. It's between them and God. We cannot convert someone. We recognise that, don't we? We're clear on that. And so we tolerate. But to tolerate sin in the church, to just say, well, that's no problem because we're tolerant, it's just a complete misapplication. And if we do so, the church will lose all distinctiveness. Jesus said, if you you lose your salt, you're the salt of the earth. That's what gives it the flavour. If you lose that, you become worthless except to be trampled underfoot by people. And the world would love to just trample us underfoot. But it has no right to do that unless we give up our saltiness, unless we begin to renege and say, oh, okay, no problem. You mustn't do it. Try this one. We have moved on from the bad old days of hellfire and brimstone where people trembled at the thought of God. We have come to realise through Jesus Christ that God is all-loving and accepts us as we are. We will treat you the same way in our church. Does God accept us as we are? No. If he did, there'd be no need for the gospel. Yeah? He doesn't accept us as we are. He accepts us as we repent of our sin and put our faith in Christ Jesus, yeah? Then he accepts us as we are. So we can come as we are today, into his presence, no ritual, haven't got to go through washings or special clothes. Why? Because we're in Christ. How did we get in Christ? We fell to our knees and said, I'm a sinner, please forgive me, I'm going to turn away from it, I'm going to hide in Jesus, yeah? That's how it works. At that point, God accepts us. God does not bend, fit or change around our likes and dislikes. Hallelujah. It's good news, isn't it? If he did, I'd be scared. We are the ones who change. We are the ones who bend. We are the ones who uh, disassociate from stuff. No, it's going to affect my relationship with God. That's how this thing works, isn't it? That's how it works. He doesn't change. He will not change. That's what leads to reconciliation, forgiveness and a new life by the Holy Spirit. And have we moved on from, trem- from trembling? Have we really moved on from trembling? I tell you, we have if we want God to overlook us. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And what is the house you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Hey, don't you want, don't you want God to look on us? Don't we? God to regard us, God to say, you've caught my attention because you are trembling at my word. Amen. Enough said. Try this one. At our church, you will be accepted and not judged. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 to 12. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, because then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother or calls himself Christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. For what have I got to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 
We are to judge in the church. If we don't, it becomes a moral free-for-all. Do what you like. No biggie. Do whatever. Come together, sing some songs. No power. God's not in the house. Because you're just doing whatever. Let's look at one of the verses that they might use. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself don't see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The problem is not in me trying to remove specks from your eye. The problem is, is in me trying to do that while I've got a log in my own. Jesus doesn't say, leave the specks alone. Jesus says, get the log out, then you can do it well. See the difference? Yeah? The wrong judgment is when we try to fix other people's lives but are totally unwilling to be taught ourselves, totally unwilling to be corrected ourselves, totally unwilling for anyone to challenge us. Absolutely wrong. We don't do that kind of judging. But there is a kind that we do do. The Bible never prohibits speaking correction to bring growth and change. Try this one. You're all right. You're all right. When the GLBT church visited the Gay Pride March, in fact, they have their own float on the Gay Pride March. That was their message to the marchers. You're all right. Now, if it's true, I love it. I love it because it's friendly, you know? It's non-confrontational. Who likes confrontation for the sake of it? I, I think, no, I love that. I love that if it's true. But is it true? Am I all right? Well, let's just have a look. We've got we to know, how does God view us? Are we all right? Is Jesus celebrating the multicoloured rainbow life of the gay community? If he was on earth, would he be dancing on one of the floats as it went down the street, celebrating together with it? Is the message, you're all right, or is the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? You see, because the GLBT guys say that and Jesus says the other one. Are we all right? Or is it a case of none is righteous? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Romans 3. Why don't we just hold up our hands and admit, I'm not all right? Anyone with me here? Why don't we just say, I'm not all right. I need help. Isn't that what becoming a Christian is, saying I'm not all right? It's not saying I'm all right. You're all right. Let's be friends, God. It's not saying that. It's saying I'm not all right. I need forgiveness. Can you make me right? God says, yes. Turn away from your sins and hide in Christ. Then he declares us right. Hallelujah. Justification. You're all right. Hallelujah. I'm all right now. But when I'm living in sin, I'm not all right. It's not all right. God doesn't say, well, no problem. It's okay. I've moved on from that. No, he hasn't moved on from that. He's not moved on from that. He's never made a mistake. He's never caught out. He never, oh, I didn't see that coming. No, he sees everything coming. And we're not all right. He's all right. He's all right, isn't he? I mean, isn't it better to come together and sing about the fact that he's all right instead of we're all right? That isn't that more inspiring? That is much more inspiring. Praise God. We need mercy, don't we? What is it that stops us from saying, I'm not all right, it's pride? And isn't it interesting that they would call their march that? The inability to accept, I'm in the wrong and I need to change. That is the Christian lifestyle, isn't it? Isn't it? It is for me. It is for me. God, I was short-tempered yesterday morning. I shocked myself. I just, and you think, haven't I got it yet? Haven't I got it yet? What's the option? I can blame God. Why you got a problem with this for, Lord? I'm all right. Why do you keep moaning? Why do you keep saying your word that I shouldn't be doing this? No, I'm not all right. He's all right. 
So I'd say, God, deal with me. Deal with me again. Help me. You know, you, that's, that's the Christian life, isn't it? There's no condemnation. We know that, we know that he's our Father. He pulls in and he says, yeah, come on, I'm going to help. I'm going to get you through. Yeah, he forgives us. The blood of Christ cleanses us. He's with us. He's for us. But we're not all right in that sense, in and of ourselves. We're all right in Christ. I've probably made that point a lot of times now. But I wanted to nail that one. Try this one. But homosexuals have strong and deep longings for people of the same sex. I tell you what. There's people out there who have longings for other people's spouses, kids, animals, inanimate objects and corpses. But biblically, we're corrupt. You said that already, Steph. I know. Well, that's the point. We're corrupt. And homosexual practice is just another symptom of sin and idolatry. To permit it is to affirm sin. To resist it is to glorify God. The church must be clear. Who's the Lord? Is it, who's our God? Is it the Lord or is it our feelings? If it's our feelings, right on, no problem. Let's just throw out reason. Let's throw out the scriptures. Let's throw out 2,000 years of church history and let's just get modern. If the Lord is our God, then let's obey him. It's pretty simple. It's classic Mount Carmel stuff, Elijah with the prophets of Baal. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And this whole homosexuality thing is linked in with Baal worship. You look at Baal and Ashtaroth, they're the two gods in the Old Testament that really encouraged sexual immorality and what caused God's people to stumble. And the third god was Moloch, who was into child sacrifice. And we'll be looking at that next week. This defence of homosexual practice is nothing new. It's the same old, same old. It's the inherent need of a logical being to create logic to defend their lifestyle. It's nothing new. Historically, those who have let themselves be penetrated or violated by another man have been despised and have been charged with giving up their manhood. In the same way, to give way as a church to the gay rights agenda would be to bow down before the demonic creature and give away our strength. Death first. We won't do it. We will not become unhealthily obsessed with it, but while I'm speaking on it today, let it be known, we will not do it. It's outrageous, outrageous for them to even suggest for a moment that we might swap our dogma with theirs in the name of tolerance. It's a joke. And it won't happen. We shouldn't be surprised in one sense. 2 Timothy 3 says this, Understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, without self-control, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Having the appearance of godliness, they say, I'm a brother, I'm, I'm with you, I'm, I, I follow Jesus too. Avoid them. I'm going to finish with a passage that will be a vision for us of the future. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. It's beautiful. Listen to this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Hallelujah. 
We must remember, why did we come here? Why are we here? Why did we come? Why have we planted this church? It is to express the life-transforming love of the Father, which is seen in the appearance of Jesus Christ, once and for all time and for all people. The love of God is powerful in effect. Don't we believe that? It's powerful to change lives. It's supernatural. It's not subject to any natural laws. People could have studied with things from, struggled with things from day one. God's powerful love in the gospel can break them free from it. It's the power of God. His love is unchanging. It's a humble love. It's a love that burns with passion for sinners like you and me. And we've been called to express this love to, to those in London and to see God's gospel succeed in the lives of 21st century Londoners regardless of their social, ethnic or religious background. Amen? That's all we're here for. We've got the message of life. Christ crucified. Foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us that are being saved, it's the power of God. As the years unfold, we will increasingly be able to look out on the congregation and say this. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. I'm glad that series is done. It was emotionally taxing. And I'm sure even listening, you think, man, alive. I know. And it's not going to be the focus of what we are as a church. We need to know that as well. But every now and then, there are certain political, ethical, hot potato things that we've got to just really grasp by the, grasp the nettle and say, what's the deal here? What's God saying? And represent him truly and humbly. And God will honour us in it. Okay? God will honour us. It's his kingdom. It's his church. His arm is not too short. He will act for us as we stand by his word. And don't be compromised by the world. Amen? Let's break bread. Oh, questions and answers. Hey, questions and answers. Anything you like on this subject. I mean, it's, yeah. What to do is a gay, someone is a gay vicar. Thinks it's, fine, thinks it's fine to live a homosexual lifestyle. When you bring up the Bible, the Bible's been changed. I mean, I just, I, I just can't see the logic between being wanting to be a vicar and not trusting the Bible. I just think, what do you spend your day doing? I just don't know. What, what are you teaching people? I mean, the whole thing is so deranged. I just don't think there's... I, just, I, just don't, I think you need to just pray for mercy. I, you need to pray... Honestly, you need to pray for mercy. Because we... This is what God's left us. Yeah? His spirit in us and his word. If we're not believing this, then where's the anchor? What, what are we actually believing? We're just, we're just making it up. So I, I don't even, I think you need to just say, please, either you re- receive this as God's revelation or, or, or it's not. You can't pick and choose. You can't pick and choose. There's no integrity in there. It's intellectually not even viable. I remember the article I read last week from that guy who described himself as a gay atheist through that article in the Times. He knocks the church for, do, for doing just that. Mustn't do it. Any other questions? Um, can't we say that a lot of the lifestyle issues that you brought up are more, in terms of the health issues, are more to do with promiscuity than homosexuality? Um, Okay, two, two answers to that. Number one, I, I spared you some of the medical details regarding anal sex. Um, 
which I just, I just, honestly, I felt sick myself reading. I just thought, I can't just impose it on people, turning unsuspecting. Come to visit church this Sunday. Ah, you know, what's going on? I just thought, it's unfair. Um, the anus is not created for sexual activity. And um, the repercussions of that repeatedly are very, very unhealthy in that sense. Secondly... You could argue that in some parts of it are to do with promiscuity, yes, but then you must also look at the facts and the stats which suggest that that homosexual lifestyle and that whole culture is, actually celebrates promiscuity. And so it's built on that as one of its foundations. Whereas although there are heterosexual promiscuous people, absolutely. I, I, don't, think it's the, I don't think they're the same in that sense. Okay. Anything else? Seb. Okay, so last week I said I wouldn't let someone be a member of the church that was in a ho- actively homosexual, pra- getting involved in that practice, but would I, would I have the same rules for someone who was actively, um, unrepentantly in some kind of other sin or in a sexual relationship that was out of marriage but heterosexual? I think on the issue of the person that, um, that is in, an, in a sexual relationship but is heterosexual but not married, no, we wouldn't allow them to be a member of the church. In terms of the other sins, I think sometimes lying one is hard, isn't it? You never know when people are lying, if they get really good at it. But I think if people are unrepentantly, um, yeah, people are in the church and they're, they're, they're deceiving people and that's discovered and there's no sense of repentance, then yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I th- but I think it's a really good question because I think sometimes we can, some of the charges that are made against us is, well, you're emphasising this, but what about greed? And I think, so we, you know, you go out and eat 50 slices of pizza and everyone has a good laugh about it. And I think we need to think that through because it's idolatry. The Bible speaks about your God being your belly. And we need to really watch that in our Western society. We really need to. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really good point. Esther. Um, what practical steps can any of us that might have um, had issues with the stuff that you talked about take? Yeah. From... Practical steps in terms of if you've got some issues along this line personally, what, what's the next step? You know, you want to get free, you want to you follow the Lord. I think probably what I would say with this issue is probably I would just ask you to come and see me and we'll just walk it through together. I think there will be other issues which would, pre, would be perhaps seen as less, um, less, less core to identity in that sense where I would say go and see your TENS leader or something like that. You know. But I think with this one it's best to start with me and we'll take it and journey through together. So I think that's probably the, that, that would be my advice. Michelle. Sure, sure, sure. Yes, yes, yes. Sure, no, that's a very good question. How do you respond with friends that are in same-sex relationships and are looking to get the whole civil relationship going so they're saying they're as committed as any other married couple, etc., etc.? I think what we need to do is we need immense wisdom in terms of learning how to apply these principles. You see, when you preach like this, you don't preach into exception. You don't preach into... No, that's the, wrong, that's the wrong phrase. You don't preach into individual situations. You have to say these are the principles. And then you need real wisdom from God to now to apply them into specific relationships and find, find ways. So Paul's saying there, listen, 
to the Corinthians, they, they, they'd misunderstood what he said. They thought he said, oh, we're not allowed to associate with anyone sexually immoral, so they're hiding away in caves. Paul said, no, 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 no. I'm talking about you mustn't associate with those who call themselves Christians, but are living that lifestyle. Those who are in the world who have no profession of, of uh, don't pretend to be, but are living that lifestyle, of course you associate with them. You're in the world. You're called to reach them. You're called to build bridges. Yeah? And so I think we need to say, we, our aim is to love those people, um, but, not, but, but not to just feel that in doing that, we have to affirm everything they're doing. Uh, for the, because if we say something, well, then the friendship might be ruined. Well, sometimes we have to risk that. I think sometimes faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, sometimes you need to say, you need to talk about these things. So I think there's a, I think we need to be full of grace, but seasoned with salt. That's the Bible approach. So we, we love, we embrace, we just reach people, absolutely. And we don't try and make people into Christ, to live a Christian lifestyle before they're Christians. That's crazy. So we share the gospel. We don't make the homosexual thing the big deal. The big, the big deal is Jesus. And then when they come say, well, what does repentance mean? Well, part of it means this. So we're reaching people with the gospel. I think there's a real mistake to try and make people live like Christians that aren't Christians. It's madness. Would you have done? I wouldn't have done. But I met Jesus. Oh, now I want to change. Yeah? Sharon. Yeah. Sure. Very good. That's an amazing question. And we're going to face this one increasingly. Those who are brought up in a relationship where their parents are both of the same sex, you know, and you're just trying to help them through on stuff and help them know how to relate to their parents. Well, the Bible says only your parents, you know, so I think that's a biblical principle. We teach them to do that. I think in, in, all, in all cases, we are just looking to, if people want to get saved, we're looking to help them to learn how to think biblically and to totally rearrange their moral framework because that's what happens when you become a Christian. You get turned upside down. So we're looking to help them do that while still honouring uh, their parents. So I'm sure none of our parents are perfect, yeah? But when we, when we get saved, we, oh, I need to learn to honour them now, even though actually they did that or they didn't do that. We, we do that because we honour them. So I think in that sense, it, the principle stands the same. But of course, the subject will probably come up in conversation, so you present the biblical view. And they will have to learn to process, okay, so the Bible teaches this about my parents, and I love my parents, I need to work out how to do this. But don't we all have those kinds of complex things in our lives, even if it's not about this? How do we relate, you know, family that don't know the Lord and friends and how we love them and show that we totally, you know, we don't see ourselves in our own sense any better or holier than them. We're just the same, but we've been saved. Jesus has saved us. That is a humility, but we still are able to say, but look, this is what I believe and here's why. We might have got to walk that line, I think. Otherwise, we end up either being self-righteous, which is disgusting, or cowards, which isn't great either. Sorry. Oh, my goodness, look at the time. That is a disgrace. Right, let's break bread. I will never preach that long again, but I hope. Okay. Dave, Dean, you're going to come and do bread and wine today, and then we're going to run out. I'm sorry about this. I hope, I hope this has been helpful these two weeks. A bit unusual. Um, but... Uh, yeah, there you go. Over to you. <laughs>